that we need you. Lord, in pain and in joy. And so, Lord, I pray that now that we would come to your word, that we would come and have you through your word. I pray, Father, that you would come and speak and that we would have ears to listen. In the glorious name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to ask you, if you would, to take your Bible and turn with me to the little letter in the back of your Bible in 1 John. And if you don't have a sermon outline, just simply raise your hand and these kind folks will be glad to give one to you as we come. If you're new to us and here in the life of the church, we study the Bible carefully. We practice something called expository Bible teaching, which means that we seek to expose the text. We want to know what the text says. And so we work our way through the text, exposing what is there, um, bringing out from that text the truths that God has for us so that we might understand it and accurately know what God has said. So last week, Pastor Lucas brought us back to our study of 1 John, and we studied a passage at the beginning of 1 John chapter 4 where we are told as followers of God as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are to test the spirits. This is, it was about testing the spirits of the world, testing the spirit of the instruction and the teaching that we have. As Pastor Lucas rightly said to us, every word that is ever preached, that is ever spoken, that is ever taught from this pulpit or from any class, any radio program that you ever see, any television program, any internet video that you ever click on, anyone that you ever hear teaching what is to be the truth, you must test. And what do we test it against? We test it against the Word of God. We test it against all of Scripture. And so, indeed, we want to continue to walk in that. This morning, I want to do a little bit of a background and a little bit of review. This is especially for those of you that are new to us this morning, but for all of us, we can be encouraged, and the message that we come to 1 John 4, 7 through 12 will make that much more sense as we proceed. So notice here in the background and review, number one, the Apostle John is writing to churches that are being assaulted with satanic lies. So John is writing toward the end of the first century. The church is going, this is one of the last letters to be written that would be included in the New Testament. So the church has been going now for a good 40 years, 40 to 60 years in fact. And so when we come to hearing John write, he is looking at the churches around the Mediterranean world and he knows that many of them are walking in the truth but many of them are struggling with satanic lies that have made their way in. In fact, what we call incipient Gnosticism was bubbling up at that time. It was a heresy. And part of that, you notice here, the Gnostic spiritual elite we see addressed in 1 John, the arrogant, unholy, and loveless character of those teachers and those people who believe those things. You see, many believed arrogantly that they had no sin, and so that's why in 1 John we see him deal with that. Many of them believed that, that it didn't really matter how you live in the physical life so long as your spiritual life was okay, so they lived unholy lives. They lived greedy lives. They lived sexually immoral lives, and they did it in the name of God. 
And then some of them, they had no love for others. Um, they simply did not love others. And so John is saying to the churches, these are satanic lies that tell you that these things are not important. And isn't it just like Satan to counteract the things, the truths of God? So number two, he writes, fill this in, to refute false teachers. So he is saying they're wrong. He is seeking to correct that. He, he writes to refute false teachers and to reassure genuine believers. That's what this letter is about. He wants true believers to be encouraged. And so last Sunday, that refuting of false teachers tests the spirits. And then it says right there, what we saw last Sunday, for many false prophets have what? Entered the world. They've come into the world. Look at number three with me. He writes to clarify the defining signs of genuine saving faith. So part of what John is doing is he's writing for true believers to be assured that they are gods and that they can know that what they believe and what they've been called to live is really from God. But he's also writing for those who are false believers to be revealed. So he wants true believers to realize that the people who are believing the wrong things and living the wrong way, they are not believers. They are not, and so we, we are told, don't follow them, don't go with them, don't go with the teachers that are like that. So in this little letter, he's giving some tests. He's giving the tests by which you can determine if you are a true follower of Christ. And those tests are very valid for us today because all around the world today, we just see the same things bubbling up over and over and over again, decade after decade, century after century, even now millennia after millennia, many of the same things. So that one of the first questions is, and notice number four here, he gives defining signs involving doctrine or beliefs, that's what you believe, doctrine and morals. Well, that's how you behave. So he's dealing with doctrine and beliefs and morals or your behavior. How do you live? Um, and do you live in accordance with the morality of God? So notice the first one here, the first bullet point, the defining sign of a biblical view of Christ. Do you understand who Jesus is? in foundations this morning, foundations of faith study that we're doing. The entire session was on who is Jesus, and do you understand correctly who Jesus is? That is critical. That will determine whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell. You better understand what the Bible says about how, who Jesus Christ really is. That needs to be crystal clear in your mind and in your heart because that is critical to God's plan of how to redeem us and to save us. So the defining sign of a biblical view of Christ, and you can see that, how it's been dealt with already twice, and then it'll come up again in the coming weeks. Notice the next one, the defining sign of a biblical view of sin. Do you properly view sin? See, some of these teachers were saying, oh, I don't sin, I have no sin. And so that... John is dealing with that. To the one who says that he has no sin, he's deceived. And the truth of God is not in him. You see, we need to understand what God says about sin. Now, but notice the next one. The defining sign of biblical what? 
obedience. And so we see that we're called to obey. And John is saying to the early churches, hey, if you're not obeying, you don't know God. So it's not, it's not just for you to live however you want to live. God has called us to hear his words, to understand his commands, and to obey them. And then we come to this defining sign of biblical love. Again, it's already come up twice. You see it in chapter 2, verse 17, 7 through 17, and chapter 3, 11 through 24, and now here we are again, chapter 4, 7 through 21. And so the, the Apostle John is writing in a beautiful, cyclical manner. He keeps coming back on these key issues to make sure that we understand them, and he deepens it and broadens it at various points along the way. And so now we come again to, to this defining sign of love, the defining sign of biblical love. So, notice the statement underneath that. The true church has always maintained that God's Word clearly sets forth basic standards of belief, there it is again, doctrine, and behavior as necessary marks of genuine saving faith. And so I want to begin in the outset of this, once again asking this, do you believe the words of Christ? Do you believe this? Because whether you believe it or not will have a lot to do with whether or not you recognize the whole of who Christ is and what he's called us to and knowing God in faith for salvation. Now here's another question for you to reflect upon your own mind and heart and your life. Do you obey the words of Christ? Because Jesus himself said, why do you call me Lord but do not do the things that I say. So it's not that you come to church and you sit, you hear a nice sermon, and then you get in the car and go home and uh, live your life um, unaffected by uh, what you've heard and what you've seen and the things that are here. No, God has called us to be active, actively obeying what Christ has called us to do. So notice the next statement here. A key indicator of true salvation is do you genuinely love others with God's true love? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So this is a key indicator of true salvation. Do you genuinely love others with God's true love? Let's read the text. It's in the box at the top of the page. We have it there on each one of these pages so we can methodically work through it. I want when you, to, when you read the text for you to be able to say, oh, We're going to study that methodically, and I can understand that by the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit working in your mind and in your heart. Look what it says in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. There it is. Can you underline that? Let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You see, he's trying to help us to see who has been born of God, who knows God. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. 
in this, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, here it is again, we also ought to love one another. Can you underline that? We also ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's work our way through this text and see what John what the Holy Spirit has for us in this. The first thing I want us to see is the word beloved and circle that word beloved that's up there. Um, In fact, it shows up in this short text twice. You see it at the beginning of verse 7 and you see it at the beginning of verse 11. And the picture is here, he is, he's turning his heart and his mind and his writing in a tender way to, to get our attention again. That's why he would, he would put this in the middle of his letter, and he would say, beloved, and then he says a very important statement. It's kind of like you're having a conversation with someone, maybe your son or your daughter, and you're really working through something with them, And then in the midst of that conversation, in a moment where you really want to have their attention, for them to feel your your compassion or the seriousness of it, you say their name in the middle of it. You you see what I'm saying? It's kind of like, you know, Sebastian's having a conversation with me, and we're we're going on, we're talking for a while, and then somewhere in there I say, but Sebastian, this is what you need to see. That's kind of what is happening right here. He's saying, beloved... There's a seriousness that, that is just kind of, this is a device to bring us back to see the heart of what John is saying and to get our attention to see the heart of compassion and the importance of this. He says, beloved, let us love one another. And there it is. Number one, see the command to love. Let us love one another. There it is. This is what the whole thing is aiming toward. And we see the reflection from Jesus' own words. And you can just imagine John is writing this around 90 AD. And it's been about 60 years most likely since since John heard Jesus do this teaching. And so when we go all the way back to the Gospel of John, which I've quoted here in John 13, John was a young man at that point. He's listening. He was the youngest of the disciples. He's listening to the words of Jesus. And eventually, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he would go back and he would write down those words. And the Gospel of John would come into being. And we would have John's perspective of the life of Jesus in the Gospel of John. But then fast forward 60 years, the churches have spread. The Word of Christ has spread. And now he's writing again to them. But let's go back to the beginning of this, John would remember the Lord Jesus saying these words. Look what it says in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you. There you see it. That you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So in that short verse, there it is twice, and we hear the words of the Lord Jesus in the great message of the gospel that he is seeing, he is showing us that the teaching of God teaches us what God's heart is after, and it's that we would love God and that we would love one 
another. So this command, John is saying, if you're a Christian, you're going to love others. You're going to love one another. Now look at verse 7 at the top of the page again. Look what it says. Beloved, let us love one another. What's next? For love is from where? From who? From God. That's right. So number two is the source of love. So the source of love is God. He is the source of love. Now, it's interesting, and uh, there are three different things that John says that God is, and he says them over and over and over again. Number one, God is life, and we see that. You can notice the, the references out there in 1 John. It starts off with Psalm 36 of the Old Testament, but then we see that Jesus is the God of eternal life. So God is life. God is light. We see that he is the God of light, Isaiah 60 and verse 19, but we also see it in John's letter in 1 John. But here we come to God is love. So God is love. Now in the Hebrew, there's no interesting device that John is doing with LLL. Um, that's, that's not um, what is the picture here. It's not um, some type of, of device of an outline, but he is saying that God is life, God is light, and God is love. God is the source of this love. Now look at the top of the page once again in the box that is up there. Notice it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And then look at the next part. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now at this point, John is really centering in saying this. Number three, see what the presence or absence of love indicates. And what does it indicate? Salvation. It indicates genuine faith. It indicates whether or not you know God. This is very, very critical. That John is saying to us that, look what it says there right underneath that point number three. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. And then here it is very plainly, because God is love. So he's not only the source of love, but this is what he is. This is who he is. This is how he works. And if you don't have love, then you don't know God. Now, the Apostle John was also there um, and was, was listening and seeing and hearing as Jesus would teach and speak. And he tells about one of the events when a Pharisee, early on in Jesus' ministry, would come to him at night. This was the band of religious teachers that were very educated in the Old Testament, and they were listening to this one teach. And um, in the night, because he didn't want to have all the critical um, response from his colleagues, perhaps, Nicodemus comes to the Lord Jesus. And following the life of Nicodemus and his coming to believe in who Jesus is is a very, very interesting study. You ought to do that sometime. You ought to look and see how at first he comes in the dark, but eventually he boldly comes in the light. Um, but notice here with me in John chapter 3 and verse 1 through 21, 21 and I'm only going to read the first three verses, but that tells the entire story of his first meeting with Jesus. Look at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. 
and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this is the starting place. This is the conversion of faith in Christ. And so, Jesus, Nicodemus really didn't even ask a question. He just came to him and said, this is amazing. We see that you're a teacher from God. Nobody else could do these things except God. And Jesus goes straight to the heart of the issue. Jesus goes straight to the issue. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And the only way you can be born again is through me. And if you're not willing to be born again, you cannot know me. You cannot have me. And so man is born one time um, of birth, uh, of water, and then he's born again spiritually by the Spirit. And that's what he is getting after here. So the picture is this, is that those who love have been born again. Those who do not love have not been born again. Now Satan has made this a murky issue in this day and time. There are all kinds of things that Satan has done in, 20, in, the, in the present generation in which we live, in the, this present era, concerning love. I mean, there's, there's a wide range of things he's done. The word love, um, he has distorted in many, many different ways. For many, the word love really only refers to anything sexual. Um, uh, the, the whole sexuality of, of physical relationship. And then there's all, I mean, we, I'm not going to use all the terms that we use, very common terms, but um, we, they're distorted. Um, the, the, the main phrase that we use to describe sexual intercourse, you know, the idea of making love. Well, I mean, is that, is that making love? You see, there's been a distortion in this. And then the distortion of confusing relationship, proper and right relationship with another person, um, with specifically a spouse, has been confused and in, in injected with pure sexuality as opposed to everything else that often goes with love. And there's often the picture of acts of service toward others. Did you know that you can do plenty of acts of service toward others and yet only be loving yourself? So we need to be very careful that the motivations of our love is very often when, when someone says, see, look what I do, I love others. See, look what I do, I love others. It becomes all about you as opposed to about the others. And so what, what we start to see here is that God is working in the heart so that the heart is no longer seeking to bolster pride or bolster moralism, but instead is seeking to bolster the true love of God. So this is a, this is a picture, this is part of the indicator of someone. Now, if someone knows all about who Jesus is, knows all about what Jesus did on the cross, and can cite chapter and verse for all of those things, but yet does not have a heart of compassion and love and empathy and service to others, it is an indicator you do not know God. 
You see, that was the problem with the Pharisees. The Pharisees could, cha- could quote chapter and verse on everything, but the Bible tells us that the Pharisees did not love the people. They were selfish in their mindsets. They were selfish in their motivations. And so here we see that you can know all the right things and not have a heart of love. That can be very true at Sheridan Hills Baptist Church. In fact, some of the people who you might think in your mind have the purest of motivations, well, you don't know their heart. I'm not saying that you run around and doubt them, but I'm simply saying that we must look inwardly for ourselves and recognize whether or not God has given us a heart of true love. Because whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and anyone who does not Uh, love does not know God because God is love. Look at the next part, number four. And this is verses eight and ten. The nature of true love. This is, fill it in, the nature of true love. And I want you to see verse eight, nine, and ten. Let's read that. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. There's where we are. This is the nature of love. God is love. Goes on in verse nine. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his Son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So this is describing what the nature of love is. Um, At the end of verse 8, there is that phrase, God is love. And that is um, on the walls of some of your homes. That's on the bumper of some of your cars. That's on the keychain for some of you. That's on the bookmark. Um, It's a beautiful statement, God is love. But, you know, what does it mean? Um, First of all, there's a discussion among scholars as to whether this is an ontological statement about God's essence. When you're talking about an ontological statement, you're saying, well, what is, the, what is the essence of God? Is this saying that God is this interesting attribute, this, this virtue? Is God this virtue? Is this the essence of who he is? I, I agree with the ones who say, well, no, it's not so much an ontological statement about his essence as it is describing his nature and who he is and what he does. So notice the next part of that, or rather a description of the loving nature of God as revealed in his saving, fill it in, self-sacrifice. You see, God's love is an others-oriented love. It's not a self-love. Instead of being a self-love, it is a self-sacrificing love. So it's just the opposite. It's just the opposite of that. And so when we begin to come to the Scripture and begin to grow in our knowledge of who God is and what He has called us to and what John is actually saying here, we need to start to see that the world is very confused about love. And what it often describes as love is really a self-love. In fact, now we're boldly saying that in, in every imaginable way. You need to love yourself. You need to love yourself. Put yourself first. If you're true to yourself... 
If you're true to yourself, then you'll be fulfilled and you'll be able to live life and everything else. I mean, the, the phraseology and the statements now are so anti-scriptural, they are so contrary to the Word of God that it's just, it's out there to where, now where everyone accepts it as, as true. You know, before when you would say some of those things, when, when the culture knew what the Bible said a little bit more, there would be pushback. I mean, immediately somebody would say, what? Love yourself? And, and, and watch out for yourself and, and all of these things. What we start to see that there's some dangers there. Now, there's nothing wrong with understanding who God has made you to be. There's nothing wrong with not hating yourself and the idea that, that you in yourself are, are, are um, the center of, of everything that is there. That, that's what the Bible calls us to push back against. But here's the, the picture. There's a, there's a reality of being honest with who we are and who God has made us to be. And so this is the picture of him saying, look at my kind of love. So let's look at the nature of God's love. Verses 9 through 10 beautifully show us this, and it's God's loving nature, fill it in, in action. This is God's loving nature in action. And verse 9 and 10 help us to see that. Look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was what? Made manifest among us. So it was shown to us. So the first one that I want you to see here is that God's love is obvious. You don't have to wonder. It's it's clear. It's true. Um, There's been times that I've met people and gotten to know them a little bit and kind of wondered, man, um, does he love her? It's not obvious. I mean, would the people around you say that it's obvious you love your wife? I mean, is, is that apparent to others? Or wife, is it apparent that you love your husband? Is that, is that obvious to others? You see, a healthy love is a love that, that this is obvious. And I'm not merely talking about, you know, come here, I'm a sugar booger, and, you know, I'm going to, you know, it, it's, it's not all about you know, the, the, those things, but I mean, it's, it's beyond just mere PDA, public display of affection. It has to do with how you live with this person and whether or not you love them. With God's love, it is beautifully obvious. And how is it so beautifully obvious? Look what it says in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that the world might live through him. So God sends his son into the world. This is, God's love is a self-sacrificing love. Now, if you understand anything about the Trinity, what you begin to see here, this is God giving God. This is God giving himself. This is God giving the second person of the Trinity, which is him, to a fallen world. And so the high king of heaven leaves the halls of heaven and comes and is born into a horse's stall, born into humility, born into a fallen world that is going to reject him. So this is God self-sacrificing us to see who he is. God sent his only son into the world, and for what purpose? So that, so that we might live through him. And this is talking about eternal life that we might live through him. 
And then notice the next part here. In this is love, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. You see, God's love is not only obvious and self-sacrificing, God's love is unmerited. It is undeserved. And I want you to underline this where it says, not that we have loved God. You see, there's the picture. Not, we didn't love him first. In fact, later we're going to see, in a couple of weeks, we're going to see that the word clearly says that we love because he first loved us. And so in, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still helpless, Christ died for us. So this is unmerited, undeserved. It's not because we were so lovely. It's that God is such a true lover of those whom are his. Notice what it says, God's love is unmerited, undeserved. And then we go on. God's love is effective. It does something. This isn't a love that is idle. This isn't a love that is powerless. This is a powerful love. Notice what it does. And he sent his son to do, to do what? To be the propitiation for our sins. Now, outside of church life, almost no one hears the word propitiation. We just don't use that term very often. You don't get, go to Home Depot and then stand in line and then they say, okay, so what do you need? Well, I'm here to do the propitiation for these goods, you know, the payment for these goods. You just don't use propitiation very often. But this is a, this is a very important word. This is a word that is describing the satisfaction of the sin debt, the payment for the sin debt for our sins. This is the appeasement of God over in his wrath, that his wrath will not be poured out on us. The fact that the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ in our place, that sacrifice was accepted by the holiness of God, and the wrath of God that would have been given to us is poured upon Jesus. Notice what it says in Romans 5, 8. And these three verses back up the top four points that we've just, these four bullet points. Notice that we, it's obvious, it's self-sacrificing, it's undeserved, and it's effective. It does something. Notice Romans 5, 8. But God shows, it's obvious, he shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see all four of those that are right there. Number one, First Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. Now look at 1 Peter 2, 24 again. Notice something there that's very important. The word himself. Does the word himself have to be there for that sentence to work? The answer to that is no. He could, it, the sentence could say, he bore our sins in his body. But when the Holy Spirit inspires Peter to write, he himself, there's an emphasis there. And the emphasis is beautiful. God wants us to know, it's not just that he worked it out so the debt would be paid. God wants us to know that he paid the debt himself. He paid the debt by taking our sin upon himself. This is a holy God that accepts no sin 
1 Corinthians tells us that he comes and he becomes sin. Colossians says that he comes, he becomes sin, that we who, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Look, notice here, he bore our sins in his body on the tree, that's the cross of Calvary, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. And then, the quintessential verse of all time for the overview of the gospel is John 3.16. I mean, I want you to notice this with me. All of these are here. God so loved the world. It was obvious. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. That is sacrificial. That whosoever believes in him would not perish. It's, it's undeserved. We're just called to believe upon him. But have everlasting life. He comes and he redeems us, and his sacrifice is effective for us. Notice the next page as we go on. And and this really comes to verse 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12, and there's a couple of interesting things here that I believe are so helpful to us in understanding John's concern that we know that true Christians are going to love others. Um, The first thing, let's read verse 11 and 12. Beloved, here's that word beloved again. If God so loved us, underline it, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Number five, in verse 11 we see this. See how God's action calls us to action. God's action calls us to action. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. You know, very often we see the Lord Jesus saying, come and follow me. Come and do what I do. In fact, the Lord Jesus, when he is going to commission, he says, go and preach the gospel. Go and make disciples. And then what does he say? He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what does he say? Teaching them all that I have commanded you. And so that's exactly what we see here. We see that Jesus loved them. He taught us that by his own actions, and he taught us that by his words. And he calls us to follow in his footsteps. And so those who love God and those who know God, it is going to show in action in the way that we live our lives. Number six, I want us to also see this, and this is in verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me. No one has ever seen God. That's a curious phrase. We'll talk about that. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, that first phrase, no one has ever seen God, is a little strange because in Jeremiah and in the Old Testament with Moses and numerous others, Joshua, we see that God reveals himself in one way or another. We know that Moses was not able to see the face of God, so had he seen the face of God, the scripture says that he would die. And so we, we see that God is revealing part of himself. There's, there's a filter, uh, there's a veil of God that he He does reveal himself in the Old Testament, but no one has sat before him and knows exactly what he looks like and and can describe it. 
not in this era and not in the Old Testament era. And so this is not saying that it's not that people haven't seen what God is like and those, the, the, the aspect of, of his appearance, but here we see the greater emphasis is this. In this present life, if you want to see what God looks like, love one another. That's what God looks like. That's more important than a, a visual image in your mind. You see, people can see God in the way that we live. And that's exactly what John 13, 34, and 35 is all about. John 13, 34, and 35 says that we are called to love one another, and it's, listen to this, through our love for one another, the world will know that we're His. You see, the world will see God when Christians love one another. The world looks at that and wonders, what in the world? I've never seen that quite like that before. This is what shows the world that we are with God. Now, when Christians do not love one another, what does it show the world? It shows them that they don't need what we have. Because they say, I've got enough conflict in my life. In my own house, I have enough conflict. In my neighborhood, in my homeowners association or my condo association, in, in my job, in my extended family, why do I need more conflict? But when there is a harmony and a self-sacrificing love for one another, the world begins to see that something is strange. Something is otherworldly. So number six, see that the closest you are going to get to seeing God is loving one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. You see, loving others, this is what God looks like. And for now, in this present era, until the Lord calls us home, and until the great marriage supper of the Lamb, this is the most important way it is for us to see God. You don't need to be living your life hoping that God will pop out from around one of the corners and you get to see his face. That's not going to help you more than what is going to help you is that you would begin to see God love others through you. When you begin to see him change your heart, when you begin to, when you begin to see him change the motives in your heart, and he begins to change the way that you love and that you work with others, then you are seeing God at work. I've often thought about this passage. Look what it says, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore be, circle that word, imitators. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Do you know some families where you, you kind of notice the kids and you notice that they are so much like their mom and dad? It's kind of amazing. She's just a spitting image of mom or he's just a spitting image of dad. 
I've known people that have businesses before, and dad had the business for a long time, and then one of the sons comes along, or all of the sons come along, and they operate in that business. And there's sometimes when you kind of look at that, and you go, man, he's just like his dad. It's so interesting to see that from time to time, and it's a beautiful picture of what God has called us to be. Notice this in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 5, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and did what? And gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now does that mean that you're supposed to go lay down on a cross somewhere and let people drive nails through your feet and hands? No, we can't redo what Jesus did. There, there's no calling. We say, well, don't they do that in the Philippines, the Passion every year? And I've heard of that before. Yeah, that, that's, that's not what we're talking about. We're not trying to reenact Calvary. But friends, what we are seeking to do is to reenact the life of Jesus that was surrendered to the will of God for the glory and the betterment of his work in people's lives. And so God has called us to so love the will of God that we would love the people around us with the sacrificial heart that God has loved us. So fill this in. We are never more like God than when we are sacrificially loving others. You want to be like God? One of the greatest ways that you can do that is say, Lord, let me truly love others. Let me truly come to sacrifice my desires, my wants, all that I have, that you would be the one who is honored as I love others in your name. So the Apostle John is asking us, do you have love for others? Um, and that can be seen in the way that we live our lives and what we do. Now, I have some blanks here that I want to take a couple of minutes. We've got a little bit of time, a couple of minutes for you to think through. And um, we don't have the do 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 you know, we, We're not going to do that, but we are going to give you a couple of minutes to think about this first question. How does God love us? How does God love us? Now, we could have thousands of blanks here. But one of the ways that God loves us is that he sacrifices for us. Another way that God loves us is that through that sacrifice, he forgives us. I'm going to give you one more. How about this one? God has compassion for us. Can you can you come up with a few more yourself? How does God love you? What else does he do with you? 
Just write some down. Give you a couple of minutes. How does God love you? It would be worth you filling a couple of legal pads on that, but notice number two. Here's where it's going. How can I imitate him in loving others? You see, the things that you would write down above those, many of those are transferable to the way that you can love others. As God has loved you, you are called to love others. I mean, we just mentioned sacrifice. We just mentioned forgiveness. In fact, the Lord Jesus says, if you won't forgive those around you, God won't forgive you. You see, God is serious about this thing of us taking His Word to heart, being transformed through the power of His Spirit to live out what He's called us to do and to live. So, if we are refusing to forgive others, if we have no compassion for others, if we do not bless others and are, are helpful to others, if we are not patient with others, if, if we withhold all that God has given to us, then it would indicate that we don't really know God. Over and over again, we see this reciprocal nature of God's work in us flowing out to others, and that being one of the great indicators that we know God. So I want to encourage you to take some time to work through some of those things and ask yourself, do I truly love others? That would be a good thing for you to work on this week. That would be a good thing. I hope this goes in your Bible. I hope when you go to have your quiet time, at least once somewhere, um, maybe this evening, maybe tomorrow, while it's still fresh, I, I hope that you go back through the messages and allow God's Word to latch on in your life. Um, but notice the next three, or the, the number three. If I care enough to deeply consider these questions, what may it indicate? To understand that better, let's read the next one. If I don't care enough to deeply consider these questions, what may it indicate? You see, John is wanting to affirm true faith in Jesus, genuine salvation for those who are genuinely saved. He wants to affirm that. But he also wants to expose false faith. He wants to expose if you do not know God. That's what he's doing through the whole letter. And here we see one of the great tests is that he's circling back on for the third time is do you love others? And so the question there is, if you care enough to consider this and to grow in this, I think it may indicate that you know the Lord. But you know what? If you're just waiting for roast beef or whatever's for lunch, 
I think it may indicate you don't know God. If you could care less that his word has just warned us that we need to check our hearts and see if God is giving us a true love for the world around us. Amen? Let's stand together. Holy Father, I pray that your word in every way would find its mark in our hearts. Lord, that we would become more like Christ because of this word, that we would imitate Jesus more because of this word. Lord, where our hearts are unloving, I pray, Holy Father, where my heart is unloving, I pray that you would rebuke me. Lord, I, I pray, I ask for gentleness in that. I ask that you would be merciful to me, Lord. But I also don't want to run in the folly of not loving others. Lord, I don't want to be whitewashing my own sin. And so, Lord, I pray that you would reveal to me where my heart does not line up with this passage. And Lord, I pray that you would be building in me a greater love to obey you and to love my brothers and my sisters as I should. Lord, I know that that will be tested at different times, and I pray that you would help me to pass the test. And Lord, I pray that what I've just asked for myself, I pray that my brothers and sisters would ask for themselves. And Lord, today, maybe for some of us, we're sitting here thinking about the fact that I think I love like the world loves. I think I really love most of the time because of the way that it'll make me look or just because I'm supposed to. It's not an outflow of my heart and it's not an outflow of what you've done in me. Oh, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal today in people's hearts their need to come to the Savior who loves freely and for all the right reasons and that they can cast all of their heart before him. They can cast all of their sin before him and know that that's the reason he went to the cross so that we can live. So, Father, I pray that even today that you would use this text to reveal to some that they need to trust in Jesus and ask for the true love of God to be poured out within their hearts through the Spirit, that they would be transformed into likeness of Christ, made holy and blameless before the Father, all because of the merits of the Son. So, Lord, help us to live this truth. I pray that you would give us the grace to hear your voice, and Lord, that we would obey in every way. In Jesus' name, amen.